You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. I realized, I think I, I forgot to introduce myself earlier when we were doing the, the introduction for Marty. If this is your first time here, if you're new to our church, my name's Sam, and uh, I get to serve as one of the leaders here at the church. But it's good to be with you. It's such an honor to get to open up God's Word and to learn together this morning. Well, today is the, is the final message of this sermon series that we've been called God of All Things. And uh, next weekend we'll be celebrating Easter together as we look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the reality that Jesus is our saving King. It's going to be an amazing weekend together. I hope you can join us for one of those services as, as Ryan was outlining. And then after Easter, we're jumping into a brand new series that, we've, that we're, uh, we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments together for, I guess it's ten weeks. And so that'll, that'll take us right after Easter. But um, before we get there, I think we finished what we started. We'll finish this, this sermon on God of all things. And so if you've been with us through this series, you know that what we've been doing is we've been looking at all sorts of different things. We've been looking at stuff, we've been looking at matter, and we've been asking, what do those things teach us about the world that we live in, and then ultimately, what do they teach us about the God who made them? And so it's been lots of fun. It's been inspired by a guy named Andrew Wilson, who wrote a book uh, by that same title, and in this message specifically, I'm indebted to his work on the topic as well. Daryl Johnson had some great stuff, and a friend of mine uh, named Jason Ballard from Vancouver. The thing that we're going to explore together today is... Wait for it. Donkeys. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. This is a section of scripture that uh, has been referred to as the triumphal entry. It's a, it's a beautiful and in a lot of ways a classic Palm Sunday message. And I guess speaking of which, Palm Sunday, which is today, marks the start of something that's often referred to in the church calendar as Holy Week. It's sort of this kind of countdown to Easter. And so this story that we're about to look at today happens quite literally just a few days before Jesus would go to the cross at Calvary. And so that's the text we'll be looking at. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. Would you stand with me as we read this scripture together? As a church, we believe the words we're about to look at, that we're about to read together today, are the most important words you're going to hear. And so we stand in honor of that. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 29. Speaking of Jesus, it says, When he drew near uh, Bethphage and Bethany at at the mount that's called Olive, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a donkey tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as, he was, as it had been told them. And as they were untying the donkey, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the donkey, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Let's pause there for now. 
Let's pray and then we'll unpack this together. Well, God of all grace, we're gathered here today as your church because we love you. We want to bring you glory and honor. We want to learn from you. And so today, as we, as we look at this story, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would speak to us, that you give us ears to hear what it is that you would want to say to us today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, if you Google funniest animals, like I did this last week, one of the first ones that will show up in that kind of list, that gallery of images, is a donkey. And despite all the different animal options that are available, and there's a lot of funny animals, I I, I wasn't super surprised to find that the donkey was among the top on the list. And I was actually really happy that it was because it helped me to make this point. But but donkeys are are a pretty funny animal. they're, They're oversized teeth and their ears, the kind of hee-haw sound that they make. Uh, I think donkeys sort of look like the poor man's horse. And I also think maybe the donkey knows we think all these things about it, and so it it, it ensures that it's going to live into this identity. And uh, there's kind of this stereotype of them being completely uncooperative in every way. (laughs) Even the name itself is kind of silly. It's kind of funny. It's fun to say, donkey. In a lot of languages, that name donkey or ass is used as an, as an insult to people, implying that they're stupid or incompetent. And, and to be honest, it, it's not very hard to understand why. Yet at the same time, this is the animal that Jesus, our Savior, that God incarnate, rode in on as he entered Jerusalem to save the world. Not a horse, a donkey. Not in bright lights and human glory, but in, in, in humility. And in service. When I think of this scene that we just read, I, I kind of think of it like, like Jesus is, is riding in on this donkey. I kind of think of it like a president or prime minister or a top CEO. Think about Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk not riding into town on a limousine or a Suburban or even a Model X Tesla, but instead pulling up to a highly esteemed event on a milk float. Ironically, we've traditionally referred to this moment in Scripture as the triumphant entry And that word triumphal is borrowed from a Roman phrase. Essentially, it was this kind of victory parade where conquering commanders would ride into the city and they'd be applauded and celebrated after killing and defeating the enemy nations. And that's exactly what the Jewish people expected from their Messiah, their coming king, a warrior like King David to the nth degree, someone who would come and destroy their enemies. But that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus was doing. If he wanted to be presented as a war hero, he would have come on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood like like we see in Revelation 19 as it describes his future return. And if he did that, then everyone would have understood exactly what was going on. But instead, he rode in on a donkey, an animal as temperamental and unsuitable for warfare as you could possibly imagine. And it's also not like riding in on a donkey was was just an accidental thing. It wasn't something that was just the convenient option. Like maybe he sprained his ankle playing ball with Peter and John, and so he hopped up on the donkey for the final stretch of the trip. No, he was super specific about it, sending two of his disciples into town to, to find the donkey tied and to bring it to him. This moment was very intentionally planned out. Why? What's Jesus' deal with donkeys? Well, all of that about donkeys and the goofiness of donkeys in mind, one important note that I think is is important for us to consider is that that donkeys were a sort of royal animal in the ancient world. 
Strange as it sounds, there were a few different times throughout Israel's history where rulers and kings would ride in on donkeys. One example would be the sons of David or Solomon. He he is named and proclaimed king as he rode in on a donkey. Not only that, but the prophets of old, there's there's a prophecy from Zechariah, and he promises that Israel's true king will return to her riding on a donkey. I think sometimes we get so excited talking about the humility of Jesus and how different he was than every other king that we want to use the riding in on a donkey to say, well, see, see, because of his posture as a servant, because he came in riding on a donkey, uh, no one would have even caught it. No one would have acknowledged that he was even king. No one would have realized that he was king at all. But that's not quite true. See, kings did ride in on donkeys from time to time when they wanted to communicate that they were coming in peace. And everyone who read scripture would have, would have known this. Anyone who knew history well would know that kings do ride donkeys from time to time. It's likely that everyone who had gathered there in Jerusalem on that April afternoon would have recognized exactly what was happening here. This was the Messiah. This was Israel's king, or at least someone who was claiming to be Israel's king. And that's why a number of gospel writers kind of outlined the scene saying that there was palm branches that were being waved and cloaks thrown down on the ground. They recognized him as king, but he was riding on a donkey because he was coming in peace. He was living up to Israel's prophe- or Isaiah's prophecy where he was named the Prince of Peace. When I picture this scene of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, coming down a mountainside, I kind of imagine it like, uh, in local terms, I imagine it's like going from Coquitlam to Port Moody down Snake Hill, kind of coming down Gatonsbury onto, onto St. John Street. And I imagine Jesus is slowly wobbling down that steep hill on the back of a donkey. And as he gets to the bottom of the hill and, and as it, he turns onto St. John Street there, I imagine that there's a crowd covering every square inch of the street, as far into the distance as you can see, maybe as far as Rocky Point Park. And as Jesus rides in, they're clearing the way and they're laying down their jackets and cardigans and picnic blankets. And and the crowd is cheering so loudly you can barely hear yourself think. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, peace in heaven and earth, glory in the highest. What a scene it must have been. The king entering Jerusalem, celebrated by the people, but not on a white horse, showing dominance in this kind of war hero status, but on a donkey, a sign of peace. He wasn't coming to wash, the, wash in the blood of his enemies. He was coming to wash the feet of his friends. He was this very unexpected king. See, the people expected a king to come and to cast judgment on their oppressors. But Jesus, the unexpected king, would come and take the judgment of all of humanity on himself. They expected a king who would come and who would fight the Romans. But Jesus had this very different salvation in mind. See, if Jesus did come as this kind of military king like they wanted, if he, if he led this, this victorious and successful uprising against the Romans, that would only have brought a limited freedom for a few people for a limited amount of time, maybe for one generation or for two generations. But God was doing something so much greater in this moment, so much greater than any of those people that were there could have imagined. See, Jesus wasn't just coming to kill a few oppressors. He was coming to kill the ultimate oppressor, namely evil and sin and death itself. He wasn't just coming to bring about salvation for a few people for a limited amount of time. He was coming to make a way for humanity to rescue them for all of eternity. And he wouldn't accomplish this rescue mission with military might, but with great sacrifice on the cross. 
On the cross, he'd pay for the sins of humans, past, present, and future. And for those who would receive his sacrifice, he would stand in the gap. Or maybe another way of saying it, he, he would be the substitution, taking the penalty that we deserved. He would die in our place. There's this great uh, story in uh, World War II that I think illustrates this point so well. It took place in July of 1941 at Auschwitz concentration camp, where at that time a prisoner had escaped. And so what the guards did is they, is they found 10 random people and they put them in this, they, they were calling for them to go into this starvation bunker to die. One of the guys that was picked was this guy named Francis Gajewicic. And as he was being taken to the starvation camp, he started to yell out and cry out, my kids, my wife, I'll never see them again. And at that moment, a guy named Maximilian Colby stood up and he said, take me instead, I'll go, take me. And for some reason in that moment, the guards agreed. And so they left the other guy where he was, probably shaken up by fear and adrenaline. And they took Maximilian in his place alongside the nine others who were sentenced to be, be killed. Not long after that, Maximilian died. And 41 years later, in 1982, in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Pope John Paul II, he was talking to this crowd of 150,000 people. And he shared this story of Maximilian Kolbe, and he said this really profound statement. He said, it was a victory that, like that one of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Maximilian, he gave his life so that someone else could live. In the same way, Jesus of Nazareth, the true and very unexpected king, he gave his life on behalf of all of humanity so that whoever would put their hope and trust in him would live forever. Jesus of Nazareth, this true and unexpected king, gave his life on our behalf, on the behalf of humanity, so that whoever puts their hope in him can live forever. On the cross, this great substitution happened. Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb, bore our sins and took our consequences for our sin that we are incapable of paying. He's this unexpected king. He's coming in peace. But the text goes on and it also portrays him as this weeping king. Look at, look at the text. Look at verse 41. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Let's remember this scene. Remember, the crowds are cheering, they're worshiping, they're celebrating as he enters. And, and, and as he catches a glimpse of the city in the distance, he starts to cry. And there's no indication in the text that, that this, these are tears of joy. Actually, quite the opposite. In the verses that follow, it confirms that his heart is broken. The word here that's translated as tears, it's not just a single tear kind of coming down his face. The word in this original language indicates that that. It's, it's heavy, wailing, a kind of soul agony. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he cry? Well, it's easy to think, you know, maybe he's crying because he knew what was ahead. He knew that these same people who were, who were cheering and saying, Hosanna, that in a few short days that they would turn on him and, and that, those, that praise would turn to condemnation as they called for him to be put to death on a Roman cross. But that's not it. That's not what we see in this text. That's not why he was crying. Jesus was weeping because he knew the fate of Jerusalem. He knew that Jerusalem, the city that was meant to be a place of peace, that was meant to be a light for the nations, that was meant to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, would find itself in ruin. See, Jesus was God's last great appeal to Jerusalem. He was his great appeal, but he wasn't the first appeal. 
See, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God sending prophets and messengers to the people of Israel, telling them to turn back to God, to turn back to, away from the way of the world and turn back to him, to live out their calling that he had given them, to align themselves with him. But they continued to reject each messenger that God had sent. And then ultimately, this is the last moment. This is the final week of Jesus' life in ministry. And as he rides in to this, seize this crowd, he realizes that they're about to reject him too. To reject Jesus is to reject their salvation. Jesus is the only way to peace. They want to dabble in the ways of the world. They want, to, they want to do things their own way and build up some utopian future that aligns with their vision of human flourishing. But the only way to peace for Jerusalem, the only way to peace for us, is in Jesus. And so by refusing Jesus, by rejecting the way that leads to life, they've chosen a path that leads to destruction. And in a very literal sense, that's exactly what happens to Jerusalem 40 years later. By 70 AD, the, the, the city was destroyed, the temple was torn down by the Romans, and it was all turned to rubble. Jesus wept because he had compassion on them, because he loved them. He saw the destructive path that they were on. That while this moment seemed promising, as they all shouted Hosanna and, and seemed to be celebrating the arrival of the king, this moment wouldn't last. And for many that were in the crowd, they were probably just riding the momentum of the room. They were, they were probably just living into the energy of that space. But as soon as the kingship of Jesus butted up against their wants and their desires and their preferences and what they thought his kingship should look like, they would turn on him and reject him, the very one that was sent to bring them peace and life. He wept because the power of sin was running rampant and destroying relationships and families and communities and lives. God's great earth was decaying and being destroyed. Injustice and abuse, pride and evil desires within the human heart were building up these walls between them and each other and walls between them and God. And the solution was right there in front of them. The scene where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, it's not just about Jerusalem. The compassion he has isn't only for that specific community within those four walls, but the compassion from Jesus is for all cities, for all people, as he looks into the eyes of men and women and children who are on a road that leads to death, that leads to ruin and destruction, and he longs to set them free. I wonder if, if we share Jesus' heart for our city. Do we weep for those who are lost and wandering? broken and oppressed in our city, who don't realize that the solution to life that they've always been longing for and never found is right in front of them, is calling them towards himself. I think so, so often it's easy to just get comfortable going about our lives, coming to church on Sundays and maybe going to a midweek event from time to time, building up some middle-class life and working towards a comfortable retirement. And none of that in itself is bad, not at all. I guess the question that I'm asking is, have we forgotten that there is a lost and dying world just outside of our windows? There are people who are hopeless and wandering and completely missing the only thing that can truly bring them peace. One pastor that I heard on a podcast recently said that as pastors and leaders, that we don't have any business leading a church in a city if we don't weep for that city. If we don't weep for the city that we've been called to. If our hearts aren't broken for the people outside our church walls. And this week I've been so deeply challenged by this. As I've been walking and praying, 
I've just been, I felt this new sense of desire and hunger to see our city reached with the gospel. That we would see homes and office buildings and neighborhoods so deeply affected by Jesus and his way and, and, and the presence of Jesus that we would see great renewal and revival happen among us. See, I don't know about you, but when I look at the state of our world, the state of our society, things are looking really bleak. They're not looking good with war and disunity and fractured relationships and oppressive government systems and racism and the list goes on and on. And I don't say that to be all doom and gloom, but I do say it to help us kind of pop the bubble that we so easily live in where we forget that without Jesus, our neighbors and our friends and our family members are headed on a path that doesn't lead to anything good. Jesus wept because he had compassion So I think first and foremost, if we're to embody this compassion that Jesus has for our city, it starts with prayer. It starts with us asking God to move first in our own hearts, to give us a desire and a hunger, but then to break into our neighborhoods and our condos and office buildings and coffee shops, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that the peace of Christ, that the peace of our triumphant king would reign in every home across our city. It starts with prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it starts with prayer. And then I think it also requires action. See, God invites us as church to join him in bringing peace to our world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are his peacemaking vehicles, bringing peace to a world that's in chaos and ruin. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans 10, 14 to 17. He said it like this. He said, but how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if no one tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? That's why scripture exclaims, a sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things that God has done. But not everyone's ready for this. Ready to see and hear and act. Isaiah asks what we all ask at one time or another. Does anyone care, God? Is anyone listening and believing a word of it? The point is, before you trust, you have to listen. Unless Christ's word is preached, there's nothing to listen to. And I'll say this. When he says preaching in that text, he's not talking primarily about this about the 20 to 30 minute monologue type message that we share on Sunday mornings. I think it includes this. But what Paul's referring to in that text is is this declaration of Jesus and his kingship in our everyday lives. And that's certainly not something that's reserved for, for pastors or for paid ministry staff. This is a responsibility of every follower of Jesus to share of the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives, to, to share about this king who brings peace to a world that's in chaos. So as we close, and uh, as we start this holy week, prepare our hearts for Easter. Maybe a really simple application of this text is just praying and asking God, what does it look like to be a bearer of peace in our homes and in our neighborhoods and workplaces? What does it look like to be a carrier of his peace, that same peace that Jesus comes in, the reconciliation that he promises? Who might the Lord be placing on your heart? Maybe it's to invite over for dinner or to take out for coffee What would it look like not to add chaos to the world, but to bring the shalom of God wherever we go? 
maybe in very simple terms. It's asking the question, who could I just invite, like Ryan was saying earlier, who could I invite to Easter next weekend? Easter is one of the very few times in the year, maybe it's Christmas and Easter, where people who don't normally go to church are more open to coming to church than any other time of the year. Maybe it's inviting someone, taking a risk, and just saying, would you come along with me? Or maybe it is Alpha sitting around a table and talking about faith, but inviting family members and coworkers and neighbors to engage in conversations about this Jesus who has changed our lives. So as the band comes up to lead us in a song, I just want to take a couple minutes and maybe create a little bit of space for reflection, for personal reflection for each of us. And, and in the quietness of this moment, I just want us to pray and ask God, is there someone in my world that I could intentionally build a friendship with, invite to dinner, go for coffee with, invite to Easter, invite to Alpha, someone whose heart God might already be drawing to himself, but you can come along and and, and share the good news of Jesus with. Let's just take a couple moments and and pray. If there's someone he he would ask us to bring his peace and shalom to. As we close today, I want to bring this conversation back to the thing that we started with. We kind of followed this passage of scripture where it leads, and we left the conversation about donkeys a little while ago. But in this text, Luke 19, Jesus is described riding this donkey, and it points to him coming in peace. On Palm Sunday, Jesus, our king, comes riding on a donkey. He comes in peace. In a few short days, he's going to go to the cross. And he'll die a death in our place. He'll rise again, bringing life and life to the fullest. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.